People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book and it's uh, Erev Yom Kippur. It's also Erev Shabbos. And in preparation for this this specific show today, I uh, interviewed uh, a Rabbi Doron Kornbluth, who was recently in South Africa, uh, brought out by the South African Jewish Board of Education. Uh, after he got back to Israel, I interviewed him. He's the author of five books, as you'll hear in the interview, all of them with a very specific Jewish theme. He also started a printing company, uh, a book publishing company in Israel called Mosaica Press. He also speak about that in the interview. And uh, I wanted to get something a little bit more soulful, a little bit more Torah for the show, specifically today, because it is Erev Yom Kippur. Uh, some some really big, important ideas facing the Jewish world from a person who has made dealing with some of the major, the major, major issues in the Jewish world one of his main focuses. So I hope you enjoy and find uh, as interesting this interview as I did, and just to share some of the thoughts of Rabbi Doron Kornbluth with the wider South African listening audience. This is People of the Book, and we are very privileged to have over the phone Rabbi Doron Kornbluth in Israel, who is joining us to discuss the books that he's written and the state of the Jewish world now at the beginning of the 21st century. Rabbi Doron Kornbluth is one of the treasures of the Jewish world. He travels around extensively talking about intermarriage, Jewish identity. He also is a tour guide in Israel. And if anyone is looking for a family trip to Israel with an unbelievable guide who knows the Torah and the Jewish history behind all the different places that you can go to in Israel, he's also someone worth looking up. He has a website, doronkornbluth.com, and you'll find details of all of the books that we're going to discuss now on his website, Welcome to Chai FM, Rabbi Doron. Pleasure to be with you. Hi, it's so nice to speak with you again. Uh, it's good to have you back with South Africans. You were here recently, and that's when I met you, and that's when I decided that I've got to get you onto this book show so that we can discuss some of the books that you've written because the topics of these books, especially Why Marry Jewish, are so, so urgent and so important for us to discuss. So I'm going to jump, well, before we jump into your books, can you can you give us a bit of a short biography about you, about Rabbi Daron Kornbluth? Sure. Uh, so I'm uh, born and raised in Montreal, Canada, and uh, immediately after um, graduating university, I uh, made Aliyah, moved to Israel, where I've been ever since. Uh, so that's uh, over 25 years. And um, I'm married, you know, thank God, uh, children. My oldest is actually in the army, and my uh, my younger ones are all in yeshiva and the Yaakovs and all that, uh, you know. Um, and uh, thank God we live in a place called Ramat Beit Shemesh, which many, many South Africans, I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with it. Um, and I travel around uh, quite often. Um, you know, I do a few different things in life. One is, as you mentioned, I travel around teaching. That's how I sort of got to know South Africa a little bit better. I was in South Africa 10 years ago, 
when uh, in in Cape Town, the uh, Claremont Weinberg Shul brought me out for uh, for their uh, Jewish Enrichment Week at the time, and I also was uh, I spoke for Aish in uh, in Johannesburg, I and mean, I hadn't been in South Africa for ten years, and then I just came back, which is when we met. Uh, and thank God, a very uh, meaningful and, and successful in time. I was in Johannesburg for eight, nine days, and I was in Cape Town for four or five days. That was this past August. Um, and so I travel around. I'm in the States a few times a year and in Europe, you know, traveling around, speaking to all different types of communities, on to, to, to families, to I speak to, to rabbis and educators, I speak to families, I speak to students. You know, when I was with you, I spoke to, I think, all the Encounter kids um, and uh, many of the other King David kids and, uh, and the... Um, I was in the Cape Town Herzliya kids, and um, I speak to student university students, uh, all different types. And then we, uh, as I mentioned, tour guide. I also have a, um, I'm a co-publisher of a, a growing publishing company called Mosaic Press. You'll find our, uh, you know, you'll find our books in the Coa Bookshop and, and elsewhere. And um, and uh, you know that's been growing there very nicely and producing some wonderful Torah works. So that's basically the biography of me. Uh, but let's get into the issues. What can we what can we talk about? Yeah, I want, the first book I want to talk about is the book Why Married Jewish. Um, it's it's a it's a short book, but it's a very powerful book. Why did you write the book? And what are some of the basic ideas that you deal with in Why Married Jewish? Great. So it, the book's origin was that in the in the mid nineteen nineties, I was um, I was sort of I was in yeshiva, but I was also working part time uh, helping groups uh, coming to Israel and uh, some uh, some guiding and some teaching and just I was young, you know, so I'm just starting out and helping different organizations and Madrid kind of a role. And um, I noticed that in those days, I'm going back over twenty years, almost all of the Jewish American college students were dating non Jews. Um, some felt that they, they would marry Jews in the end, and some didn't care. But almost all of them were dating non-Jews. And I remember going to the bookstore. It still exists. It's the, the bookstore in the old city in the Rova of the Jewish quarter of, of Jerusalem uh, called the Mariah Bookstore. I remember looking for a book. I didn't know what to say or what to, you know, I wanted to look at a book to recommend people, to give people to recommend people. And, and there wasn't any book on the subject. Like, when you think about it, it's the single most important um, Jewish question that most young Jews will deal with in their lives. Um, I wish more people would move to Israel. I encourage it. I love I love Israel. And statistically, you know, most don't move to Israel. I mean, thank God South Africa has had a very nice area, which is wonderful. And most Jews worldwide, the Americans especially, are not moving to Israel. Um, and uh, so what's the main question they're going to face? Is like, are they going to marry a Jew and keep their family Jewish? And I was shocked that there wasn't a book. Uh, there's a friend of mine, his name is Colin Packhouse, an H rabbi, what, what a very good book in the 1970s, um, for parents, how do you stop an intermarriage? Um, and, uh, but it wasn't actually given for, it was, first of all, it was very, very old, and second of all, it wasn't actually for, for students. So then I realized that uh, this is, this has to be written, so I, I researched and, a few years later, it came out. Um, thank God that, that book, Why Married Jewish, is in a sense, it's, uh, you know, my claim to fame in many ways that it's, uh, over 20,000 copies and given out, and you know, organizations give it out a program. You know, I, I get sponsors and they give it out. You know, uh, you know, at near cost. Uh, we've given out to many people, and people buy it. You know, people recommend it. So it's it's, it's had a lot of uh, good effects. Um, the main thesis of the book is like this. Um, and again, you can uh, if if your listeners want to hear some of the ideas that I share, there's another website. It's called Simple to Remember, and it is Simple to Remember. Simple to Remember dot com. Put in my name, Cornbluth, K O R N B L U T H, and you'll hear. There's a 40-minute audio of me speaking to young professionals on intermarriage. You can hear some ideas if you're dealing with it, so you go there or email me, doroncornbluth.gmail.com. Uh, but the basic idea of the book is like this, um, that um, if we talk to young Jews 
and tell them uh, that they should marry the Jews for religious reasons. Uh, the Torah says that you have to. Well, I mean, if they were particularly religious people, then they wouldn't be marrying non-Jews anyway. It would be the part of the so it's not Religion is not really speaking of in the classic sense. If we use Jewish guilt, um, it's not going to work. You know, the famous thing when I was growing up, it was, you know, Hitler, you much more kill six million. How can you do this? So um, it's basically Jewish guilt, and um, I don't think that works uh, very rarely. Basically telling a young person, oh, so you want me to be unhappy for your history and your religion, and they're not going to do that. Um, if we especially just they know how we feel, we as parents feel, the truth is they don't, uh, because the world has changed, the world is open, everybody marries everybody, um, and there's intelligent people and wonderful people from all communities. So um, so why should a young person marry Jewish? Um, again, a you know, more traditional person, it's like in their blood, this is who I am. But what if you're young, like well, a young woman said to me, listen, I like being Jewish, but I wear a lot of different hats. You know, I'm, I'm a... Uh, I'm a woman, I'm a cyclist, I'm a vegan, I'm a Democrat. You know, like, like I, there's a whole bunch of things. I hope I'll marry another vegan, but if not, we'll snap it. So I hope I'll marry Jewish, but if not, you know. So that's the real question. Um, without guilt, without religion, like, why should a young person marry Jewish? And I have, I did a lot of research, and I speak to a lot of people, and um, my whole approach is what I call sociological, that, um, that if you think through what is likely to be important to you. When I, when I give a talk, I do it, um, you know, I do it very uh, interactively. You know, I call people up, I do straw polls. It's, it's, it's a whole kind of dramatic thing. But the idea, the core idea, as you'll hear, in it, as you'll, you'll hear on that audio or you'll see in the book, if you don't have this issue, you should definitely read it, uh, is to, um, to make people realize that as they go through life, things become priorities change. The simple example, and again, this is a long topic, but I'll do it in one minute, is if you think of the least religious time in a person's life, the time in a person's life when they're the least interested in their religion, culture, heritage, and, you ask, and I ask people, I ask teens, and I ask college students, university, everybody knows, it's in late teens and 20s. This is my time. My parents aren't telling me what to do. I'm not yourself to my family. I want to have fun. And that is when, when this issue becomes, comes to the fore. But everybody realizes that, you know, when you settle down a little bit, and especially when you have children, get the parting out of your system, et cetera, then people, priorities change, and people want more. They want to come back to how they grew up. They want, it, they want community. They want meaning. For Jews, they, they connect Judaism more. Um, so, so the point is that even if you're not that observant right now, um, how, you, uh, how you're going to feel about religion changes as you go through life, and, and who you marry matters. Um, and once people have that idea, and I did it very short, so when we stick it out more, uh, it's, it's more convincing, obviously, but when, once a person has an idea that, yes, when I have a family, I may feel differently, and, and being Jewish may be more central to who I am, um, then everything opens up. Then you can talk about the effects on the marriage and the effects on the kids and the chances of staying Jewish, and it's a very, very powerful uh, argument, a very, very powerful argument. But to be honest, I, I, it's, uh, forgive how this sounds, but like, if somebody's not emotionally involved with a non-Jew at the present time, then I believe that, you know, it, it is actually pretty easy to convince them of the importance of marrying another Jew. If they're emotionally involved with somebody who's not Jewish, then what are you going to say? You know, love, love speaks louder than words. But, um, but, but, if, but in a moment of just, you know, of honesty and, and uh, sobriety, so to speak, um, then it, 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 the advantages are huge, and people hear that. Now, the reality is that um, it's, uh, it's something that South Africa really has to start talking about. This is, by the way, why I was in South Africa in, uh, in August, um, the, it was through Deej and the, you know, the chief rabbi's office wanted me to come because when I was there 10 years ago, this wasn't really an issue. Now, South Africa is catching up to the rest of the world, unfortunately. Uh, the new South Africa, the Internet, cell phones, everything's changed. And uh, it's not the old uh, you know, Jewish South African traditional that would never intermarry. It's not like that anymore. These young people, my, one of my main conclusions from my time 
in, uh, in, with you in um, Johannesburg and Cape Town in, in August, one of the main conclusions was that I don't see any significant differences between a 16-year-old Jewish South African and a 16-year-old Jewish American. I really don't. Uh, maybe just a few years, maybe you're just a few years behind, but, um, but in terms of the, the influences of Western society and the priorities, um, not so different. So uh, I think people have to make this, uh, make this a priority. And I know educators are, and rabbis are, and you have a wonderful, wonderful network of rabbis and educators at schools. I mean, you have the, you know, the, uh, the establishment uh, you know, that you have is incredible. Um, and make, make this a priority and talk about it. Make sure parents know. Put it this way. Uh, I'll share one stat, and we'll board a stat. One stat from this is from the 1991-2001 National Jewish Population Surveys. If parents, all of the things being equal, if parents tell their kids explicitly, I expect you to marry another Jew, that is, that is, that is a red line, that is important, right? Then the chances of intermarriage drop by half. That, that's, that, everything else is equal. What they do at home, what school they go to, just talking. Parents always assume that the kids know how I feel. The answer is no. The kids don't know how you feel. The kids know that they can probably get away with it. So you have to be very, very clear on this issue. Um, so that's the, the, the core, uh, the core ideas. Obviously, uh, a five-minute conversation, you know, like this won't, uh, you know, won't solve it. But, but that's to get people thinking of, of how to raise this issue and talk about this issue because it has to be. In too many countries, it was not talked about. And look at the results. In America today, 71%. That's seven. 71% of non-practicing Orthodox Jews. I mean, forget about the 10 or 15% of American Jewry that is practicing Orthodox with Shomer, uh, Shomer Shabbat and, and kosher. But everybody else, the mainstream, wonderful American Jews, 71% are marrying non-Jews. Um, and that's because it wasn't dealt with correctly. So in South Africa, it still can be dealt with. You can talk to your kids about it. You can talk to your students about it. Things can be changed. We're going to have a quick ad break, and then we'll be back. We're talking to Rabbi Doron Kornbluth in Israel. We'll be back straight after this. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. Rabbi Doron, you've got another book which is also very, very similar to your first one. The first one was Why Married Jewish. And then the next one is, I suppose, once you've married, you have to now keep your children Jewish. And you've got a book called Raising Kids to Love Being Jewish. This is a very important topic. Now, we, we just before Yom Kippur, we're going to go into Sukkot, and there's going to be lots of time when parents are spending time with their children. Can you share, share with us both the, the ideas, some of the ideas in the book, and if there's any practical strategies you have that our, our audience, our listeners, can put into practice during the time of Sukkot, when they're in their Sukkot, they've got time with their children. It's going to be Cholomad. It's going to be Yontif. Things that they can do from your book, Raising Kids to Love Being Jewish, that we can successfully make our children love being Jewish. Great. Yeah. So um, the uh, I, I appreciate the question. It's, it's a subject very, very close to my heart and I spend a lot of time on. Um, I, I would say like this. Um, First of all, your uh, your listeners can uh, there's on my website theronkormut.com. There is a video of me speaking on the subject. So to get the the forty or forty five minute whatever it is, you know, talk on the subject, uh, you, you're welcome to to go and listen. And um, and the book obviously, raising kids loving Jewish is available. Um, the in terms of the uh, just a you know an idea or two. So I would say like this: um, many Jewish parents um, are afraid of the role of Jewish parenting. It doesn't really matter how religious we are, we aren't. But it, we, we kind of would like to outsource it. In, in other words, if I could, you know, pay a rabbi, you know, a certain amount of money and sign a dotted line and guarantee my kid's Jewish future, then the, um, you know, I'd probably do it. Like, I have enough responsibility. You know, like, I'm, I'm an educator, but I have no responsibility in life. I'm trying to be a good husband, a good father, make a living, you know, teach, like, whatever it's going to be. 
So uh, who needs who needs the responsibility? So consciously or subconsciously, we outsource our Jewish education to to the school. We assume the school is going to do do it. Right. Um, the problem is that it just doesn't work that way. You have wonderful schools in, in uh, you know, in South Africa. I visited some of them. But really wonderful schools. Um, but a school is a place to transfer um, knowledge, information. Um, role modeling comes from the home, and whatever parents uh, prioritize, there's a strong chance the kids will prioritize in the long term. You won't see it right away, but in the long term. But um, too often, it is what I call drop-off Judaism. In America, they, many kids, not as many kids go to Jewish school, but they go to like a Sunday school. So the parents drop the kid off on Sunday morning and, uh, you know, go out and have, have, uh, have breakfast together and then come back and pick the kid up. It's a disaster for Judaism because it's sending the signal that this is for kids. So my point is that um, the, the Torah says, the Shinantam Levanecha, we're supposed to teach our kids, right? We, we give it to a school because we can't do it. No, it's understandable we can't do it. But the point is that the first lesson is for parents to willingly accept, yeah, I'm my kid's Jewish role model. That doesn't mean you have to be perfect. I'm not perfect. You're not, well, maybe you are, Rabbi. I don't know. But I, like, I'm not perfect. Most people aren't perfect, right? Um, you don't have to be perfect. You just have to show that you care about being Jewish, show it's a priority, right? Um, when, when we're talking about, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, on, uh, you know, on Yom Kippur, when somebody was, you know, listening to the rabbi as they speak, reading, thinking, you know, trying to take it seriously, uh, for sukkahs, you know, making the efforts to, uh, to have a sukkah, to, uh, you know, to find the, uh, you know, the four species, to read something. Like, when kids see that you put in some time, and it doesn't have to be hours, you don't have to become somebody that you're not, but that you are doing a little more. That's the best, best role modeling you can give. It's not that you're perfect. The best role you can give is that you're growing. And I suggest that every family, whether you're unaffiliated, you know, a reformed, conservative, uh, you know, orthodox, ultra-orthodox, wherever you are, every, all of us, there's things that we don't do or things that we don't do well. So every year, all of us, we should have like one or two things that we haven't done or we haven't done well and just try and, try and upgrade a little bit. When kids see that, right? Then, then everything changes. And that's a lesson you can do through Sukkot, you can do Hanukkah, you can do Purim, you can do any time. I'm just showing that you care, obviously making it happy, not Jewish guilt, not do's and don'ts. Yes, that's part of religion, but that's only part. You know, the Samach Kedechagecha, the idea that it should be positive and happy. Uh, if you can, you know, do some family trips, you can have, you know, can, you can have, uh, you know, friends over, have some music, have some like Make it a positive thing. People want to be connected to what makes them feel good. Um, rather than, than Jewish guilt or just relying on, on tradition. It's not, it's not enough. We have to be inspirational, and we can do it. Another book that you've written, and this one's actually uh, piqued my interest, Jewish Women Speak. It's edited by Sarah Tikva and Duron, Rabbi Doron Kornbluth. Uh, what is this book all about, Jewish Women Speak? So uh, Jewish Women Speak is one that my wife and I put together. We... The first thing that I ever um, did, you know, with uh, my publishing company, Mosaic Press, is about uh, eight years old. Um, but I was already involved in editing and helping other people's writing early in the 1990s and since then. So the first thing that I did was a little um, introduction to uh, to Judaism called Jewish Matters. Um, it had 23, it's still available actually, it has uh, 23 different um, you know, different articles uh, by leading authors uh, and writers and thinkers, and I think that was very, very successful. And uh, you know, things like ten thousand copies are you know floating around the world. A wonderful introduction. And then we had many women who were asking my wife. And I was very involved, you know, with me in many different ways. Um, what about like you know the, the class of women's issues? You know, women's place in Judaism. So, um, so I'm the editor, but she's like the uh, she's the uh, the wise woman behind the So we we work together. We put together, and it's, it's a collection of essays uh, by various 
female teachers and writers and women um, uh, explaining, you know, what it is to be a Jewish woman. It's actually, I've, I've been happily surprised by the impact and the feedback on that book, even, you know, many, many years after, it's almost 20 years, you know, since it came out. Um, and, and it's still, uh, still out there, and it's uh, people like it, and we get good feedback on it. So that's certainly for someone who's interested in those kind of issues, uh, it's a great, it's a great resource for you. And then another book that you've written, um, I mean, I'd like to say it's not a big issue in South Africa, but I don't know. Cremation or burial, a Jewish view. Uh, it's, uh... Yeah. So I'm, I'm, uh, it's, it's interesting that you asked about it. So uh, my whole um, sort of being, whether it is uh, my speaking or my writing or my, my guiding you know, families here in Israel or, or even the publishing, my, my whole being is always positive Jewish identity and Jewish continuity and helping communities and helping families and uh, helping rabbis I mean, you know, and all that. So the cremation thing is a little off-subject for me, a little morbid. I'm not really into that kind of stuff. The, the history is like that, very briefly. About um, six, seven years ago, or more. I was in Florida on a speaking tour, and in the um, I noticed in, in, in the Florida Jewish newspaper, I forget what it's called, there was an there was an ad by a Jewish funeral home offering Jewish cremations. I was like, what? Like for me, I grew up in Montreal, Canada, a very traditional city. Like nobody, I mean, Jews cremating? That's like a Nazi thing to do. Like, what? And I couldn't believe it. And I looked into it, and it turns out that in the United States right now, uh, it is approximately forty four zero percent of Jews are being cremated. Now, that's less than the general population. The general population of America is about 51% are now choosing cremation in terms of the percentage of Jewish dead. But, uh, but the Jewish community in America is, is very assimilated and doesn't know much about Jewish tradition and Jewish values, and so it's only slightly behind. And I was, uh, and I was just so bothered by it. It's, it's, the final, it's the final decision, the final Jewish decision a person makes, how they're going to be remembered, how they're going to be buried, uh, you know, how they're going to, uh, everything. And so I was really bothered by it. So I, um, I, I looked, I, I sort of got into this, I was a few, few years, a lot of time researching the subject, and I speak about the subject regularly now in America and in Europe. Um, in South Africa, from what I'm told, uh, remember I was just there in August, I did some research, in, um, in Johannesburg is less of an issue, uh, in Cape Town it is already an issue. Uh, it is, by my estimation, after talking with some people in the Hebrew Kedisha over there, and Cape Town is probably already uh, something like 15 to 20 percent of Jewish dead have been cremated in the Cape Town area. It's not less than that, by the way. It might be slightly more. Um, and uh, and it's, gonna, it's hitting South Africa for a very simple reason, because South Africa is no longer cut off, uh, as it was for many years, um, and, and the Internet is in one big global village. So uh, what's happening in the West affects everything. So uh, we had to explain why. There's been a lot of mis- uh, a lot of misinformation about cremation in the Western world. People think it's better for the environment. It's enormous research. It's not better for the environment, and I can prove it. Uh, people think that it's, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's quick. You know, decomposition underground is disgusting, and, and cremation is quick and easy. They think, uh, people think, I thought this, you know, before I researched it, I thought it was like a five-minute microwave oven. Not at all. Yeah, I don't want to get into the, the disgusting parts of it, but it, it is a long, uh, disgusting process. That's like the cremation itself. Um, you know, there's a lot of issues that when you just when you get the information, it's like, oh, now I understand why Judaism and why Jews have always, always favored burial. Tacitus, Roman historian, 2,000 years ago, in a short description of what identifies Jews, he says that we bury rather than burn the dead, meaning that it's, it's a classic Jewish thing 
to to bury the dead, to show the body its eternal uh, respect. And unfortunately, there's a lot of demand for me on that subject because there's so much to uh, so much to do. There's a website here if if you if you have some of your listeners are, are, are struggling with that issue. Uh, Cremation or burial is uh, is the book for them. That's in uh, I think it's Cold Book Shop actually has them. Uh, but the um, the website, if it's an emergency case, the website that you can go to is peacefulreturn.com, P-E-A-C-E-F-U-L-R-E-T-U-R-N, peacefulreturn.com, which I created with Rabbi Zone, who's a great uh, leader of this subject in, um, in, in America, and a woman named Robin Meyerson, and, and that uh, has a lot of quick information, including some videos on the subject as well. It's, it's Unfortunately, I, I, I hope I'm wrong, but uh, it, it's going to come, and it's going to keep coming big in South Africa like the rest of the world. So it's an issue to be, to be aware of and to preempt the train of avoid. We're speaking to Rabbi Doran from Israel and we're looking at the books that he's written and uh, most of them are available here locally at the Kulal Bookshop. Um, and there's a wide range of topics that Rabbi Doran has addressed through his books. He also runs a Jewish printing company in Israel called Mosaica Press, and you can check that out on the internet. Um, there's another, one more book that I want to just mention and ask you about, uh, and that is seems to be the central theme of most of your books, Why Be Jewish? You've got a book called Why Be right. Jewish. Yes, thank you. So, you know, it's interesting. I am... Um I've been involved in, in you know in Jewish outreach uh, in different ways for uh, well over twenty years, and it always kind of occurred to me that we have a lot of books um, and thank God good ones uh, you know um, showing why Judaism is true. Even we at Mosaic in the last few months we've released two. Uh, one is called The Immune Reality by Reb Moshe Goldstein, an amazing uh, you know an amazing teacher here in Israel. His was a famous book in Israel. We translated that in English. And Reb Gottlieb, famous Reb Gottlieb from Orsameach. His book, um, you know, just came out uh, from Mosaic, A Reason to Believe. It's an amazing book, and they're wonderful books. Um, that being said, um, not everybody is, um, is there intellectually. They can really think true, like, why Jews isn't true, why I should do it, why I believe in God. And for many people, um, we need a much more introductory just understanding of, like, why should I care about being Jewish? What's special about being Jewish? Why does identity matter to me? So why be Jewish was that my... Um, my direct answer to that, uh, you know, to that question, um, and I, to be honest, I give, um, I give, I, I now spend more time on the why be Jewish subject than I do on why marry Jewish subject because it's so fundamental. When I was with you in Johannesburg, I, um, you know, when I was with most of the younger kids, uh, meaning the eighth, ninth, tenth graders, whether encounter can give or it was, I was giving why be Jewish seminars. I give a whole why be Jewish seminar. I call people up. It's kind of interesting, but. Um, the, uh, the the why marry Jewish topic is only really for older people for obvious reasons, but why be Jewish? Uh, that's crucial for everybody, and um, and that's something that is uh, I think we all have to get get the strong on to get Jewish inspiration on why we're doing it. It's not automatic just because your parents did it doesn't mean you're going to do it anymore. And um, and people we have to know without being a rabbi without you know without proving X Y Z. I'm not, I'm not, it's not at that level, but just. And get some core ideas of why this is important, why I should pass it on to my kids, why I should put in some efforts. Being Jewish is amazing. It's incredible. We have wonderful holidays, wonderful community, everything. It does take a little bit of effort. You have to send your kids to a Jewish school. You've got to prepare for the holidays. So we have, to, we have to understand why am I putting in that effort? Why is it worth it? The good news is that you can't answer that question, why be Jewish. I have there a bunch of different approaches that parents and any readers can choose from to find like, which ones they 
which ones appeal to them, how 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 they can adopt them for themselves, you know, what I mean, I just I hope make it make it a personal approach in the end. I'll share with you one idea by the way if I have a minute. I it just made me think of now that one of the first pieces in that book actually <laughs> references South Africa. I didn't think it was until you mentioned it. But um many people are, are struggle with this. Well why should I be attached to my own particular people? I'd rather be a universal person and I'd rather be um, you know focus on all of humanity. Why focus on your own little people? It seems kinda of wrong. And so what I did was I pointed out a number of international cases of amazing contributions to the world. Um, Nelson Mandela, um, I had Mother Teresa, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., uh, Dalai Lama, um, and uh, Louis L. I think I'm missing one. I don't know if I'm in front of me. And um, all of these people um, were known as making incredible contributions to the world, uh, caring about the world universally recognized. Yet each and every one of them cared tremendously, focused tremendously on their own people. You know, uh, Nelson Mandela in terms of African identity, Dalai Lama in terms of, of, of his own Tibetan Buddhism, Mother Teresa, you know, she's, she's a Catholic nun, uh, Martin Luther King talked openly about his, his, his prime focus was, you know, the African-American community, Christian African-American community in, um, in the United States. Um, so, and, and the point is that by being particular to yourself, by being true to your people, to your identity, you're actually helping the world. All these great leaders do the same thing. By being true to who you are, you do help the world. You help the, the mosaic of the world, so to speak. Um, so it's not a question of, can I be attached to my own particular people, and then I have to abandon the world. No, it's quite the opposite. It's by being attached to your own particular identity that you help the world. And that's the core message of the book, of why be Jewish. You've mentioned your printing press, uh, the Mosaica Books. So besides your own books, are there any very exciting new releases that we can look forward to here in South Africa from Mosaica Books? So I, um, yeah, so uh, definitely. So uh, look, Mosaica, you know, has released, and we're about eight years old now, and we've released over a hundred books. They're all over the world in bookstores everywhere. We're very proud of the fact. By the way, my my shelves are filled. With Art School and Feldheim, they're all wonderful you know, <laughs> publishers. Um, Mosaic is very special. We're very proud of the fact that we have all different types of authors. I think we're unique in this. We have authors from you know the Lakewood sort of uh, you know yeshivish you know background. We have strong Torah from YU from Yeshiva University. We have a couple of uh, you know of, of, uh, of Chabad authors, uh, Hasidic authors. So we're very, we have a lot because our authors are from all over and our books get all over and we have all different types. I already mentioned um, you know the Goldstein's you know in Lunar Reality. It came out an amazing uh, you know Lunar Reality and Rav Gottlieb's book. There's a few books that when I when I came into Janice, I actually sat and I met. With, uh, with Cole Bookshop. I also met with the, the Chabad Bookshop in, in Koshwal across the way. And I, um, you know, just told us there's, there's a bunch of books that have not gone this past but I think they're on both now or they will be soon. Uh, we have sketching books. Uh, they've sold the thousands and thousands of copies. We want an author here in Israel was bothered that, uh, from, uh, you know, religious girls are looking to all these, like, non-Jewish sketching, you know, books and, and design and everything. So it's sort of like, you know, like teenage girls and, and younger girls. You know, like like doing, and so we created. It's called the Adina. First one was the Adina, uh, my design sketchbook. Uh, it got uh, went to Rena and uh, and Shira. There's, there's three of them now, and they're amazing sketchbooks for girls and women of all ages. It's fun. You want to design things like that, and it's been very very popular. Um, there's uh, there's an amazing uh, you know an amazing number of books uh, on uh, you know on the intellectual side. Of Judaism, uh, one is called the Confused World of Modern Atheism uh, by Moshe Averick, an amazing, he's actually an Asian affiliated rabbi, and um, an amazing, amazing, uh, just 
analysis of current atheism, um, and it's been very, very successful, sold uh, extremely well. We have, uh, we have a fellow named Mo Mernick that uh, grew up with a stutter. Uh, his name is really Moshe Mernick, and Canadian, and he grew up, he couldn't even pronounce his own name when he was a teenager, couldn't say Moshe, so he started calling himself Mo, and um, he wrote a book called The Gift of Stuttering, which is just a, a wonderful um, book. It's all about confronting life challenges. It's not about stuttering, per se, it's about his stuttering, but it's about how, you, how, you can, how we can take our challenges and just turn them into greatness. Um, some of your readers may be familiar with the Wurzberger. Uh, Rabbi Wurzberger is the Rosh Kohl, the head of the, uh, of the Lakewood Kolobesa uh, Talmud in, in Melbourne, and uh, a very respected uh, Torah scholar. So his book, The Festival of Torah, you know, just came out. Um, and uh, it's a beautiful analysis of the different holidays, uh, sources from all over, um, and that's really uh, it's a beautiful day getting great reaction. Those are just some of them. We've got a lot coming out. You can go to mosaicatest.com and you know, see more. Um, but uh, thank God we have, uh, there's, a lot, there's a lot of good literature being produced by the Jewish people right now. We have, uh, we're, not, we're not in need. The last question I want to ask you is the tours that you give in Israel. Can you tell us a little bit about how you orientate those tours, what you look at in Israel, how you take people around? So it's also it's a fascinating Great, yeah, another thanks. part um, of your whole. So uh, you know, this is something that uh, it, I, I did in the 1990s when I was uh, when I was still uh, you know single, uh, and then um, I, I cut down for a few years when I was traveling so much. And now the last uh, seven eight years, I'm doing a lot of. I'm actually a licensed guide, and I take it can be school groups of buses, or it can be a family. Or um, what, I, what I focus on is, is, as you mentioned before, is, is, is Jewish inspiration. Uh, that's what I do, and that's what I'm sort of known for. And um, I, while I had to, to pass the tour guide, the tour guide test in Israel was actually quite hard. In order to pass the test many years ago, I had to learn all the dates and the names and all the, all the actual histories. I know that stuff, but that's not my focus. Um, I focus on taking people to places, whether they're the known places, the unknown places, um, that um, that are just a um, that are an amazing have big impact. Let me give you one simple example. Okay, one of my favorite places nobody else goes to. I won't say nobody, but it's a very north of Tzfat. There's a national park. It's called the Baram Synagogue National Park. It's a pretty close Lebanese border, and um, there's uh, it's a it's a it's a standing synagogue. The front of the even part of the back of it is standing uh, 1600 years. That's 1600 years later. Still, that's amazing. And when you look at it, um, it's, it's fascinating because it's gorgeous. And clearly they spent an enormous amount of time and money creating the synagogue. And by hand, chiseled, right? Amazing, right? And yet, it's not symmetrical. Meaning there are, um, there's like the window on the right is a little bigger than the window on the left. And the carving on the left is a little, like, like why would they? It's kind of like somebody puts up a fancy building, you know, today, but they, uh, but they make, like, mistakes. I think there's 11 mistakes you can see right in the, right in the, right in the front. Um, furthermore, there was, a, there was some kind of a custom in Jewish history. We don't know where it came from exactly. That when they would put in the floor of a synagogue, they would throw coins under the floor, and then it would seal it up. Uh, good luck. I don't know. Nobody really knows. Um, so archaeologists love it though, because when you dig under the floor of the synagogue and you see the coins, you see when the synagogue was created. Right? So in this particular synagogue, it's created in a second to third century style. That's the building style. But the coins under it are from the fifth century meaning that in the 5th century, they built the synagogue in a style that was like 200 years before. I don't mean they just copied retro. I mean, like, they actually built it in that way, that methodology as well. It's like today, instead of using electricity, you would build a building, you know, as they did 200 years ago. So the two questions are, why did they build an old synagogue 200 years later when they should And why did they, um, why is it not perfect? So to make a long story short, obviously I do it dramatically, so long story short, the story is like this. Under the Byzantines, Byzantines were basically, when the Roman Empire became the Christian Roman, the Holy Roman Empire, right? And, it's, it's when the capital switched to Byzantium, 
which is Istanbul, Constantinople. So um, under the Byzantines, there was a period of time, Byzantines were pretty rough on us. There was a period of time they weren't allowed to build shuls. Jews were not allowed to build synagogues, right? So, um, but we were allowed to move them. So what these fine Jews did, right, 1,500 years ago, they wanted to have a synagogue in their community, and they weren't allowed to build one. So they trekked into, you know, southern Lebanon, and on their backs and their horses and their camels, whatever there was, they disassembled an old synagogue, 200-year-old synagogue, was no longer used, community moved, and they reassembled it in, in their new community. Right? And that's why there's some mistakes, because it was taken apart brick by brick, and that's why it was built in the 5th century, a little older style. So you can tell a person, go to synagogue, go to synagogue, go to synagogue a million times. When you see a standing synagogue, and you see that these Jews put it on their backs in order to have a synagogue, right? and they moved it, it was important to them, it's a whole different level of inspiration. That's what I try and do, and that's what I encourage you to do when you go to Israel uh, with me or on your own, wherever it's going to be, that um, to, to show, not just to, not just to hear, but, but to show why being Jewish is important and how great it is to be, to be Jew and how great it is to have a connection to the land of Israel. So I think that they know, uh, the uh, picture's worth a thousand words and a visit to Israel is worth, it's worth a thousand talks. Rabbi Doron, thank you so much for your time, for your inspiration, sharing all your, all your, your ideas with us, the books that you've written, and then about your, your, your printing company. Uh, Mosaic Press, and also it's just that's a very inspirational story about uh, a shul that's literally carried on the backs of the congregants from one to another place. It's very inspirational. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your. My pleasure. Wishing everybody, wishing everybody a, a wonderful, meaningful Yom Kippur and an easy fast, and a um, and a wonderful Sukkot. And I look forward to uh, meeting you next time in South Africa. And, and may you be blessed with absolute Hatzdoche and success and Broche in all your endeavors. Thank you to you and your family. Amen. Thanks so much. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book and it's Erev Yom Kippur. Uh, almost at midday. Most people are most probably frantically getting ready for the, 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 the meal later this afternoon. Uh, doing Kaporas, going to Mikvah, whatever, getting clothes ready. Uh, the, the last book that I want to discuss is a book that I've mentioned before. It's not a new book. It's a Jewish classic. In Hebrew, it's called Mesilas Yesharim. In English, it's called The Path of the Just. And it just is the most apt book to read this time of the year. It's actually very appropriate to read any time of the year. It is available in all those Jewish shops, either in the Hebrew, the Mislas Yasharim, or in an English translation. It's been translated many times into English. The Path of the Just by Rav Moshe Chaim Lutzato. Uh, as I said, it's a, it's a classic, classic Jewish book. It's been around for a few hundred years. What I want to do for the rest of the show is just to read Rav Moshe Chaim Ritzato's introduction, where he says why he wrote this book, that has become one of the classics of Jewish, um, of any Jewish library, and on working on one's character traits. Author's introduction: I have written this work not to teach men what they do not know, but to remind them of what they already know, and is very evident to them, for they will find in most of my words only things which most people know and concerning which they entertain no doubts. But to the extent that they are well known and their truths revealed to all, 
so is forgetfulness in relation to them extremely prevalent. It follows, then, that the benefits to be obtained from this work is not derived from a single reading, for it is possible that the reader will find that he has learned little after having read, read it that he did not know before. Its benefit is to be derived rather through review and persistent study, by which one is reminded of those things which by nature he is prone to forget, and through which he is caused to take to heart the duty that he tends to overlook. A consideration of the general state of affairs will reveal that the majority of men of quick intelligence and keen mentality devote most of their thought and speculation to the subtleties of wisdom and the profundities of analysis, each according to the inclination of his intelligence and his natural bent. There are some who expend a great deal of effort in studying the creation and nature. Others devote all of their thought to astronomy and mathematics, and others to the arts. There are those who go more deeply into sacred studies, into the study of the Holy Torah, some occupying themselves with halachic discussions, others with midrash, and others with legal decisions. There are few, however, who devote thought and study to perfection of divine service, to love, fear, communion, and all of the other aspects of saintliness. It is not that they consider this knowledge unessential, if questioned, each one will maintain that it is of paramount importance, and that one who is not clearly versed in it cannot be deemed truly wise. Their failure to devote more attention to it stems rather from its being so manifest and so obvious to them that they see no need for spending much time upon it. Consequently, this study and the reading of works of this kind have been left to those of a not too sensitive, almost dull intelligence. These you will see immersed in the study of saintliness, not stirring from it. It has reached the stage that, when one sees another engaging in saintly conduct, he cannot help but suspect him of dull-wittedness. This state of affairs results in evil consequences, both for those who possess wisdom and for those who do not, causing both classes to lack true saintliness and rendering it extremely rare. The wise lack it because of their limited consideration of it, and the unwise because of their limited grasp. The result is that saintliness, chasidus, is construed by most to consist in the recitation of many psalms, very long confessions, difficult fasts, and ablutions in ice and snow, all of which are incompatible with intellect and which reason cannot accept. Reading from the introduction, Rav Moshe Chaim Lutzato's introduction to his classic, Musilat Yashari in the Path of the Just, we'll continue the introduction just after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. People of the book, it's Erev Yom Kippur. We're looking at the introduction to Rav Moshe Chaim Tzato's classic, Musilat Yisharim, The Path of the Just. And I'm just reading it. It's, his words are extremely profound and very inspirational. And if you are at home over, Rosh, over Yom Kippur, afterwards during Sukkot, or you're in Shul and you see a copy of the book, pick it up. If there's an English translation, you don't read Hebrew. If you read Hebrew and you've got the original, pick it up, page through, glance again at the author's introduction, and then make the plunge and read into the actual book. He's discussing the, 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 the high level, 
in Hebrew called chasidut, English saintliness. Truthful, desirable saintliness is far from being conceptualized by us, for it is obvious that a person does not concern himself. For it is obvious that a person does not concern himself with what does not occupy place in his mind. And though the beginnings and foundations of saintliness are implanted in every person's heart, if he does not occupy himself with them, he will witness details of saintliness without recognizing them, and he will trespass upon them without feeling or perceiving that he is doing so. For sentiments of saintliness, fear and love of God, the purity of the heart, are not so deeply rooted within a person as to obviate the necessity of his employing certain devices in order to acquire them. In this respect, they differ from natural states, such as sleep and wakefulness, hunger and, 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 and satiety, and all other reactions which are stamped into one's nature, in that various methods and devices are perforce required for the acquisition. There is also no lack of deterrence which keeps saintliness at a distance from a person, but then again there is no lack of devices by which these deterrents may be held away. How then is it conceivable that it is not necess that it not be necessary to expend a great deal of time upon the study in order to know these truths and the manner in which they may be acquired and fulfilled? How will this wisdom enter a person's heart if he does not seek it? He finishes off his introduction with the following very, very profound paragraph, and that's what we'll end the show with. All of these principles require extensive interpretation. I have found that our sages of blessed memory have categorized these elements in a different, more detailed formulation, in which they have arranged accord in which they are arranged according to the order necessary for their proper acquisition. Their words are contained in a teaching mentioned in different places of the Talmud. One of them, the chapter before their festivals in Avodazora, page twenty, folio B, and this is the quote. From this Rabbi Pinchas bin Yair adduced Torah leads to watchfulness, watchfulness leads to zeal, zeal leads to cleanliness. Cleanliness leads to separation. Separation leads to purity. Purity leads to saintliness. Saintliness leads to humility. Humility leads to fear of sin. Fear of sin leads to holiness. Holiness leads to holy, the Holy Spirit. And the Ruach HaKodesh. The Ruach HaKodesh leads to the resurrection of the dead. And the book is, Maslach Yisharim, is an elaboration on all of those concepts which are basic, basically rungs on a ladder, leading a person from the first level all the way up to the highest, highest level, which he calls the resurrection of the dead. So this is Maslach Yisharim. It's available in all Jewish bookshops. It always will be because it's a total classic. It will be present in all shuls. You'll find a copy in any good Torah library. If you haven't got a copy, buy an English translation with the Hebrew on the other side of the page. There's so many very, very good translations, and it's a perfect book to read over Yom Kippur and then taking the inspiration from Yom Kippur into the rest of the year. In three weeks' time, I'll be back on the radio in the slots. The next two weeks, it's always Sukkot or, 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 or Shemini Atzeres. Um, and I'll be interviewing Ian Mann, one of uh, Joe Berg's big business book reviewers, for, about his new book. And until then, it's Kuchabas, it's Chag Sameach, and keep reading.